Diggers, hello and welcome to episode 13 of the Macho Movie Man podcast. We don't have a guest this week, it's just me, myself and I. But do not worry, do not fret. Our episode today is talking about a movie that just turned 40 this past week. And what a movie. What a movie. We are talking about... One of the all-time greatest movies of all time, one of the greatest movies of the 1980s, and a seminal watermark moment within the action genre. We are talking about the one, the only. We're doing Raiders, bitches. Thank you. Yes, we are doing Raiders of the Lost Ark. Uh, Still the best Indiana Jones film of that trilogy. Yes. They only did a trilogy. There There was never a fourth movie. They're making a fifth movie. I don't know why they're making a fifth movie when there wasn't a fourth movie. There was absolutely no fourth movie, guys. Shut up. There was no fourth movie. That never happened. I can block it out of my mind, goddammit. Uh, but yes, we are talking about uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Like I said, an all-time classic. But let's get into it and see why it's a classic, why it's held up so well, and why it is still probably the gold standard in terms of action-adventure films, and why every generation since has tried to create their own version of Indiana Jones, some successfully, some not so successfully. Uh, But let's get to it. Uh, It's directed by the one, the only, Steven Spielberg, during probably the best run of his career. Uh, He had done Jaws in 1975, followed by Close Encounters. He had had a slip-up with uh, 1941, but we won't talk about that. Uh, and then he'd do this, he'd then do, and then he'd do E.T., uh, followed by, uh, Temple of Doom, and just, he, he, he'd make a shit ton of classics during this, uh, period in time, and this is, in some people's mind, still the best movie he ever made, or one of the top, one of the best. It's top five for me, in terms of Spielberg movies. Uh, but uh, we'll get into cast. Uh, obviously, the one, the only Harrison Ford plays Indiana Jones uh, in a character that I still think he it's definitely his favourite that he plays. Like, he was, he's always been desperate to do more Indiana Jones films, which is why we're getting the fifth one, even though he's going to be 80 soon enough. Uh, you know, like, he, he much prefers this to Han Solo from how his entire demeanour towards the Star Wars franchise has been over the years. Uh, but yeah, you know, Harrison Ford, no one else can play Indiana Jones. I can't picture anyone else in the role other than Harrison Ford, even though those pictures with Chris Pratt that uh, surfaced a few years ago did look good. And there's other people who could do an Indiana Jones style of character very well, but I can't see anyone as indie but Harrison Ford. But I could be proven wrong, you know. Uh, we have uh, Karen Allen as Marion Ravenwood. 
by far and away, for my money, still the best Indiana Jones love interest. Uh, because, well, Willie and Temple of Doom is shit. And uh, there wasn't really a love interest in Last Crusade, apart from that Nazi chick. But she turned out to be a bad guy, so. Uh, Paul Freeman as Belloc. John Rhys-Davis as Salah. Uh, making John Rhys Davis the only actor to ever be in an Indiana Jones film, a James Bond film, and Lord of the Rings, which I think is fucking awesome, if you ask me. Uh, he must, he must do really well on the convention circuit then. Like, wow. But anyway, I, I digress. Uh, the Nazi villains, uh, including Tote, played by Ronald Lacey. We have Denholm Elliott as Marcus Brody, Indy's uh, close friend and confidant who would pop up again in Last Crusade, but who died tragically, tragically young enough. Uh, so he wasn't in that movie that never happened. Uh, and then you have uh, Alfred Molina in his first ever credited on-screen role as Satipo, who is Indy's uh, guide during the opening sequence in the South American jungle. Uh, but that's enough talking about cast. Um, let's get cracking with... Uh, let's go into post-production because uh, this doesn't have as... Uh, not as uh, wild a post-production as last week's episode Spider-Man had. But still a pretty, pretty interesting uh, post-production process because we're going to go into how the character formed and whatnot. He was born from a conversation between good pals Steven Spielberg and George Lucas uh, while they were on holiday in Hawaii together because George Lucas apparently always went on holiday just before a movie release. So this would have been around the summer-ish of uh, 1980, I think, because uh, that was just when Empire came out. But uh, either way, he had... He had an idea for a character based off of the adventure serials that he had grown up with. Very much like how Book Rogers and those types of sci-fi serials inspired uh, Star Wars. You had serials like Idaho Smith, who, uh, who was a, a serials character in the 30s and 40s who inspired Indiana Jones because that's what George Lucas grew up watching uh, so he had this idea in his head for that character but he didn't really want to do another action adventure style movie because he was doing Star Wars so that was kind of his he already had his action adventure film so he wasn't going to do the idea it was just mowing around in his head but then Spielberg told him he wanted to do a globetrotting action-adventure film, kind of like a James Bond film, you know? So uh, Lucas was like, well, I have an idea, and you want to do a movie within that realm, uh, so I have an idea. I have a character I've been thinking of called Indiana Smith. Yep, folks, Indiana Jones' original name would have been Indiana Smith, because uh, George Lucas is a weird man. He is a weird man who thought Jar Jar Binks was funny. But, uh, yeah, obviously that name didn't stick. Spielberg didn't like the surname Smith. It was changed to Jones, and then an icon was born, pretty much. But uh, 
And then obviously we're going to touch on one of the most famous legends about uh, the post-production process, which was uh, Tom Selleck was going to play Indiana Jones. He was the first choice for the role. Uh, I think there might even be photos of him. I don't know if they were digitally doctored or whatever, but there's photos of him in the outfit. And it, it's weird looking at it now because of how iconic Harrison Ford is in the role. But obviously Tom Selleck couldn't do it because Magnum P.I. was just started. Magnum P.I. debuted in 1980 and had just gotten very big. Uh, so he couldn't do the role. Which I feel like that's a kind of a really a bittersweet... Uh, bit, kind of bittersweet in a way because Magnum P.I. is what made Tom Selleck's career. But it also kind of stopped his career from going potentially even greater than it did. Because imagine if he had done Indiana Jones and it had still been the classic that, that, that it is. You know, his he could have been an even bigger star than he was. But, you know, that's just how things fall, I suppose. You know, uh, Spielberg wanted to do wanted to do the film, but he really also wanted to get it done quickly and within budget because he had done Jaws, which had gone famously over schedule and over budget. Uh, that that whole production was a nightmare. We'll do an episode on that eventually someday, and I will go into further detail about it. But that is one of the legendary uh trouble productions. But, uh, yeah, so Jaws had had problems. He had gone over budget and a bit over schedule on Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Uh, but those films had both been successful, so that was kind of, that was let slide a little bit. But then 1941 massively went over budget and over schedule, and that bombed at the box office and didn't do well critically. So Spielberg didn't want to have that reputation stick to him, that he was a guy who would go over schedule and over budget and that he'd be and in a way that would potentially be difficult for studios to work with he didn't want that reputation so he was like no this has to be done on time within the time schedule we've been given within the budget that we've been given uh and it was but uh yeah that was just i i just thought that was a fun little tidbit that spielberg was uh anxious about how hollywood was would have been perceiving him if the film had gone the way of some of his other films in terms of the production process. Uh, Harrison, Lu, Lu, George Lucas was uh, hesitant about casting Harrison Ford, mainly because he didn't want a situation that had sort of become to crop up with Martin Scorsese, who had been working a lot with uh, Robert De Niro. He didn't want uh, Harrison Ford to be seen as his muse. You know, he wanted to be uh, a director or a filmmaker who worked with a lot of different people. He didn't want to be one of those filmmakers that kind of just had a, a, an actor that he really worked with a lot to the point where it could have been seen as kind of a negative. Uh, not to say that uh, De Niro working with Scorsese a lot is a negative or in modern times DiCaprio working with Scorsese is a negative, but that's just something uh, Lucas was thinking at the time. Plus, because he, he was also working with Ford on... Star Wars, and obviously he knew where that was going, uh. So maybe he didn't want to muck thing, uh, mess, uh, potentially cross things over there. But uh, thankfully, uh, Spielberg was able to talk sense into, 
George Lucas and Harrison Ford was cast with three weeks to go before filming began, which is tight. That is very, very tight. But um, other actors that were considered for the role of Indiana Jones included Sam Elliott, uh, who some of you may remember, he, he was in The Big Lebowski. He was Bradley Cooper's manager slash older brother in the 2018 A Star Was Born remake. He was the villain in the 2003 Ang Lee Hulk film. Uh, he's, been in, he's been in things. Uh, Jeff Bridges, who famously denied that he was uh, ever asked for the role. But um, yeah, that would have been weird, a young Jeff Bridges. Uh, Barry Bostwick, uh, who was in... Who was Brad in the Rocky Horror Picture Show? Uh that would that would have been a really weird fever dream if he was Indiana Jones. And the weirdest one of all, David Hasselhoff was at one point considered, although I can't tell if that was actual or if David Hasselhoff was just talking shit and pulled that uh un that fake uh, fake fact out of his arse like you know, he seems like the type of guy who would potentially lie about being asked to do Indiana Jones. Because, like, David Hasselhoff, you know, he's great as a lifeguard and shit in Baywatch. But, yeah, I, that role would not have not have worked for Hasselhoff. God, no. God, no. But anyway, like I said, filming, uh, filming started only three weeks after Harrison was, Ford was cast. And was filmed largely in Tunisia, uh, probably because George Lucas found success filming Star Wars there. Uh, you know, it was where, so if, you, if you're watching the original Star Wars and they're on Tatooine, that is Tunisia, which was kind of the go, that was the go-to place for Hollywood in terms of deserts uh, in the 60s and 70s and 80s for big movies. Probably because it was one of the region areas in the region that wasn't sort of in political upheaval like you know Egypt for a while was a bit dodgy so obviously you couldn't shoot in Cairo so there's next door in Tunisia is the next best thing but uh yeah and it wasn't great crack filming it was it was a uh, very very uh it was it was a bad time filming uh Raiders of the Lost Ark in Tunisia because every cast member besides Steven Spielberg got very sick at some point while filming. Uh, plus, you know, you're in the middle of an African desert. The heat is going to be bad. And uh, from everything that's been said, the heat was really bad while filming this. And the only reason that uh, Spielberg and Lucas got through it was by reminding themselves, hey, David Lean shot in this part of the world on Lawrence of Arabia for 14 months. If he can do if he can do 14 months in this uh, shithole, then we can do a couple months, you know? Which I kind of like that, plus it's a little bit of uh, Spielberg and Lucas fanboying over David Lean to an extent, which uh, I just think that's kind of cool. But uh, yeah, despite the fact that... Um, it was Steven Spielberg coming off of Jaws and Close Encounters and George Lucas coming off of Star Wars, some of the biggest movies of all time, uh, not just from that time period, but 
as we've seen from just pop culture in general, like some of the biggest movies ever made, uh, despite the fact that this was a relative dream team in terms of uh, what they had done previously, uh, all the major studios turned this down and um, Paramount had to be really persuaded into doing this film, which part of me thinks is kind of mental because like, you have two of the biggest filmmakers in the world at that point working together. But again, like I said, 1941 had flopped. Spielberg had a reputation of going over budget and over schedule. Uh, so did Lucas with uh, Star Wars. So maybe they just didn't trust... Um, maybe they didn't, didn't trust the directors as much as they trusted the numbers that the directors' movies did. But uh, yeah, Paramount had to be talked into it. Uh, and also, and maybe it was a case of like you know the pitch wasn't uh selling well with the studios like oh it's a throwback to, nineteen thirties and forties serials and you know maybe you know Flash Gordon had come out a year or so earlier and hadn't done as well as maybe people wanted to so maybe Hollywood was just a bit hesitant about more of this, you know, thirties and forties serials homages even with um. Star Wars, although even then, Empire didn't do the, as good numbers as A New Hope did, so who knows why Hollywood turned it down. Maybe they were stupid, maybe there was other reasons, but uh, it just was what it was. Paramount did it, thankfully, and Paramount um reaped the rewards because um this movie made serious bank, but we will talk about that when we get to it. Uh, There was an early version of the script that featured a sequence in Shanghai where... um. Indy and Marion would have to go and get the staff, the headpiece from the staff of Raw from a criminal in China, uh, Shanghai. But um, that was cut from the movie, but it did evolve into what would eventually be the opening sequence of uh, Temple of Doom, which a lot of people will say is the best part of Temple of Doom. Uh, you're wrong. It's the uh, life raft going down a mountain. That's ridiculously stupid and brilliant. But, um, yeah, that's, uh, I just thought that was a nice little neat tidbit. Uh, again, as I said, Alfred Molina's first credited on-screen role. It was Lawrence Kasdan's first script for, uh, Spielberg. Uh, he would go on to then become maybe the most in-demand script writer of at least the 1980s, if not longer. Like, he's still... He was still working on Star Wars movies up up until some point during this latest run of new movies that we've just had the sequel trilogy. So, you know, he this was this was early days for Lawrence Kasdan, but he became one of the giants of script writing based off of the success of this script, which is pretty much near flawless, to be honest, as far as I'm concerned. So like it was well deserved success that came for him afterwards. Uh, Karen Allen was cast based off of uh, Spielberg liking her performance in Animal House, but um, she uh, she fought a lot with Spielberg in terms of how the character would be portrayed on screen. Spielberg probably Spielberg was leaning more towards the uh, cliched damsel in distress uh, style of female character that would have been largely common within those serials from the 30s and 40s that uh, Indiana Jones was uh, inspired by, you know? 
Because at that point, you didn't really have ass-kicking female heroines. Damsels in Distress was the norm. But Karen Allen really wanted the uh, toughest nails, badass, you know. You know, she doesn't kick quite as much ass as Indy, but she still kicks a good amount of ass. Uh, which is the version that we got on screen, I feel. You know, uh, uh, so she won. I get those uh, arguments with... Uh, Steven Spielberg, although if looking at Temple of Doom and what the character of Willie Scott was, you just get the sense that Spielberg got the female uh, love interest that he wanted to do in Raiders just one movie later uh, because uh, Kate Capshaw didn't complain as much as uh, Karen Allen did about the character. But uh, yeah, I'm very happy that Karen Allen uh, fought for fought how she did for the character that she wanted to do because I still think Marion Ravenwood is still one of the most underrated female characters, especially of this era of movies, but maybe ever, you know? There's times when she does fall into the damsel in distress uh, region a little bit in terms, you know, the whole sequence in Cairo where she's literally being... Uh, being like carried away in a big uh, basket you know that's a little bit damsel and distressy but uh, her character still has an edge to her she still she can still throw a punch she can hold her drink you know she she has a cool backstory you know she's running a bar in Nepal that's cool and you know she just has had an edge to her that characters at the time didn't have and while you know, you could look at characters that would come along later, like obviously Ripley had debuted in 1979's Alien, and then in 1986's Alien she was even better, and then Sarah Connor would come along midway through the 80s, so like, the the idea of a female action hero has changed since uh, Raiders, but, you know, I feel like Marion Ravenwood was the closest you could get to a prototype of later action heroines are just more independent female characters in these kinds of movies uh that would come later uh she's kind of the blueprint for that and uh yeah that's mainly because karen allen wanted it and karen allen fought and got it you know uh it's the shortest of the four indiana jones films including the one that we will not mention uh coming in at just about one hour 55 minutes i'm pretty sure all the other movies kind of stretch into the two-hour region. I can't tell. I can't tell off the top of my head which is the longest. I have a fe- I have a feeling it might be Crystal Skull, just because modern films are usually longer than the older films. Uh, Jonathan Price was at one point considered for the role of Belloc before Paul Freeman was uh, cast. If he had done it, then he would then he would have been the only actor to have ever been in a, a James Bond film, Game of Thrones, Pirates of the Caribbean, and Indiana Jones, which would have been a cool feather in his cap. But it's all right; he has enough feathers in enough of his caps. Uh, and yeah, Harrison Ford did all of his own stunts, or at least ninety percent of his uh, stunts, including uh the most probably the most famous stunt in the whole movie which we will get into later but uh just want to give a shout out to Harrison Ford for doing said stunt because that motherfucker was crazy doing that in all honesty uh 
because that was that uh, you know if you've seen the movie you know the stunt I'm talking about, and and that whole sequence took with the trucks in the desert, that took I believe, five weeks to film for about six minutes of screen time. That's mental, but also that's dedication. And that is also how movie making works, folks. It's it is long, it is arduous, it is a pain in the ass, but uh, when it works, it works miracles. Uh, so let's get into the step by step. First off, we open with uh, the most, uh, uh, for my money, the most iconic uh, film studio logo into movie transition ever with uh, the Paramount logo transitioning into the into the actual real-life mountain. Just beautiful. Paramount logo mountain into mountain. Iconic. And I will use that word a lot in the next five minutes because this entire opening sequence to Raiders is just... God, it's so much iconic imagery and so much iconic movie moments, you know? Uh, you We get... Uh, Indy's two guides uh, walking through the desert. It's all creepy, mysterious, and uh, yeah, the sense these guys aren't fully to be trusted. But, uh, you know, and then they start trying to get greedy, and uh, you just see a whip coming out from the shadows that just knocks the knocks stuff out of their hands. And you get Indy's uh, first on-screen uh, appearance as he's walking out with the shadows looking all cool and badass and you know, take a shot every time I say iconic, as I said, but this entrance is iconic, because it takes a couple minutes before Indy actually gets on screen, but they make it worth it. Just fabulous, fabulous uh, introduction for Indiana Jones, tells you, every, tells you the most important things you need to know about the character just instantly. He has a whip, he's a badass, and you don't want to fuck with him. Uh, let's see. In Indiana Jones then enters the ancient ruins. Uh, he loses an accomplice, uh, due to a booby trap, uh, because you know that guy was an idiot. Uh, they reach the throne room and you get the shot of Indy looking at the idol again. Another iconic image in an iconic sequence in the film. Uh, he, he, uh, he gets a bag of sand out. He. He measures the amount of sand he'll need for the weight of the idol, which is a lovely little touch that shows that, you know, Indy is smart. You know, he knows what he's doing here. You know, this is his field. This is his element that he's in. And, you know, he's not just one. He's not he's not a grave robber. You know, he's not someone who will go in and just, you know, run, grab it and get out. He he knows that... um. You can't just take it and run. You need to have something there to make it see make it seem like it's still there to the booby traps and stuff. You know, he's he's a smart guy. He he knows what he's doing as an archaeologist. Uh but yeah, so he uh he takes the idol, but even even with his precautions it still triggers the booby trap and we guess the the boulder chase, which you know, like I said, a lot of these uh, sequences have over the years seeped into public pop culture and just iconography and maybe the boulder has done that more than anything else that's it's an amazing sequence 
And again, like like if you have not seen Rise of the Lost Ark, what are you doing with your life? Watch it now. Like turn off this review and go watch it right now. Come back and you will you will thank me for it if you have not seen it because it is it is fantastic and this whole sequence is amazing. Uh, Harrison Ford legitimately did outrun that boulder, uh, while they were filming it, which I just think you know that's awesome. Uh. But um, yeah. Uh, Satipo, who was the, who was Alfred Molina's character, who was the guy who did not get killed by the first booby trap, uh, betrays Indy. You know, leaves with the idol and just drops Indy's whip. Indy has to jump over the cavern himself as the ruins start to come down. Uh, we get the really cool, but he's he gets under the. Uh, secure the door that's closing, and he just grabs the hat last minute. Uh, Satipo meets a very nasty end, very quick after he leaves Indy, just uh, dies via booby trap spikes. Uh, quite nasty, does a fair amount of uh, slightly horror vibe. There's a lot of horror vibes in this opening sequence that, um, you know, this, this film pushed the boundaries of the PG rating at the time, and no more so than here, and obviously uh, the very end of the film. But yeah, there's a lot of uh, moments here where you're like, oh, would you show this to children? This is a bit, this is a bit sort of PG-13 at least, you know? Uh, kind of scary at points, but uh, especially with the booby trap depths. But uh yeah, Indy gets out with the idol, but then uh, Belloc, uh, I'd say, I still, yeah, Belloc is the main villain here. There are a few Nazis in there, but Belloc is the one running the show, pretty much. Uh, Belloc is out there, and he takes the idol because he has backup in the form of a local tribe, which he then sets on Indy after just telling him, oh, there's nothing you can possess that I cannot take away. Great villain line. But uh, Indy's, Indy's on the run from a tribe, a local tribe with spears and uh, stuff. But, uh, and he escapes on a small plane that's out on a river. Uh, but there's a snake in the plane and that very much annoys him, which is where we hear for the first time that he hates snakes. Which I always think is just a brilliant little detail that makes Indiana Jones one of the best action movie characters ever because yeah he has a normal phobia that normal people would have he's not this indestructible perfect character who cannot take an ass kicking or cannot have a weakness you know he he is a human you know he's a not he's a badass human that a lot of people would rather be than themselves but he is still human and he has human fears and human weaknesses you know which is so important with action movies and something that I think a lot of action movies especially in this day and age have kind of moved away from or just straight out forgotten you know but I'll get into that a bit later on there's another there's another part of this film that I think ties in with uh, what I'm saying there very well that I will get to when we get to it uh but uh we cut back to uh Indy he's working his job as a professor at a university there's a bunch of female students who are really thirsty over him, which is hilarious. Uh, 
a couple of uh government he we we meet Marcus who is uh Indy's uh confidant who also works for the museum that Indy uh gives a lot of his uh finds to which again sets Indy uh, Indy up as a good guy you know because he gives all his stuff to he gives his stuff to a museum you know he gets validation from the museum and the gratitude and the the applause from there but you know he doesn't say he's not one of those uh He's not a grave robber. He doesn't. He doesn't do what Belloc does and sort of sells off his uh fines for money. That kind of that's how you separate Belloc and Indy as hero and villain. Uh, and it and it and that again later leads into you know Indy's uh whole arc as a hero. You know it's like that should be in a museum. That's very much Indy's whole mo in regards to uh, archaeology. Which again, great hero line. Uh, Marcus comes in. Uh, they talk about oh, I almost had the idol. Marcus tells him there's a couple of government agents here sniffing around. Uh, we meet the two government agents and uh, we get for my money, maybe one of the greatest scenes of exposition of all time in any movie. Uh, they start talking about basically the government agents are like, you are mates with um. Missed with um, God, I can't remember the characters. Abner Ravenwood, you were mates with Abner Ravenwood, and we find out that yeah, he was Indy's mentor, and uh, maybe they're just like um, he might have been working for the Nazis. Hitler wants the Ark of the Covenant. He's a nut about the occult, uh, and they mention Tannis. And one thing I did love a little lovely little character moment when the agents mentioned Tannis, Indy and Marcus you can just see them sort of fanboy out like they hold like they just look at each other like oh my god uh and that again that sets up you know these dudes really love archaeology which i just think that's that's kind of cool i love moments when like on screen where people just can fanboy out about their passions and stuff but yeah and then we find out tanis is you know where the well of souls is buried the well of souls is where the ark and the covenant is buried we get a little, uh, we get a little character moment where Indy is a little bit dismissive of uh, the powers that the Ark is claimed to have, which again sets up this whole Indy's not a religious man or a believer, which will always get challenged over the movies. You know, it's kind of, it's definitely challenged in Temple of Doom and Rage and uh, Last Crusade, and very much here. You know, he doesn't believe in that sort of hocus hocus mumbo jumbo, but um. That turns out to be real, and he learns to uh, kind of eat his words in a way. This film does have a fair amount of like religious undertones to an extent. Uh, you know, it's kind of it's about you know do not disturb the will of God or the power of God or the word of God or whatever. But uh, yeah, and we get and we literally have it explained to us how the later scene in the map room with the staff of Ra will work. You know. Which that's how I mean best scenes of expedition because it's not just unnecessary lines for just world building. It is everything that is said is important to the plot, will feed into the plot, will literally be shown to us on screen as is being uh, uh, ex- explained in this scene on a chalkboard. So like it is, there is no line of expo- exposition that is not important to the story that is being told which is what you need to do with exposition because 
exposition just for the sake of it is you don't need it in, in a script but uh yeah so indy sets off to nepal to find marion ravenwood who's the daughter of uh abner ravenwood although after marcus does give him a warning you know like you know the people have been looking for this ark for thousands of years uh maybe it shouldn't be disturbed which is the first uh which is the first of multiple times where it's warned do maybe don't disturb this or don't uh be careful or just be careful with this you don't know what it could do uh very much that hitchcock uh method of uh if you want some if you want to uh, get something into the audience's head in regards to the story that's very important you need to mention it three times and it's mentioned three times over the course of this film maybe the arc shouldn't be disturbed maybe the arc shouldn't be disturbed uh and yeah, it turns out it really shouldn't, as it's found out later in the movie. But uh, yeah, so that's how it uh, that's how it starts. Uh, he goes to Nepal to find Marion. She's working, working and running a bar. Uh, it's never really explained why she, how she ended up in Nepal of all places. But uh, yeah, so she's shown. You know she can handle her drink. She's drinking her customers under the table. Uh, she's very, she's very much. She's kind of. She's almost one of the lads, to an extent. She has that kind of vibe going on. Uh, Indy shows up. She decks him in the face. Uh, we get a little bit of story about they used to be. They used to have a relationship. She used to be in love with him. He broke her heart. You know that whole that whole ditty. But um. Yeah, she tells him Abner's dead and we find out that, you know, she has a bit of a strained relationship with her dad and his obsession with the Ark, you know, very much kind of a, a mirror to an extent with what we would see Indy go through in The Last Crusade with his dad, um, who, who was obsessed with the Holy Grail. Uh, but, uh... You do see that there's still chemistry between the two of them and Indy does save her when uh, Toa, who is who is by far the creepiest of all the Nazis in this movie. There's something about that guy that has just always given me the creeps. He, he kind of looks like a cross between like Toby Jones and Michael Gove and not in a good way. Not not in a good way at all. He, he, he has a little bit of raper face on him, to be honest. Uh, I do apologize for that. But he he looks creepy. Come on, guys. He, he creepy Nazi motherfucker. Uh, but yeah, they come uh sniffing around trying to get the staff, the headpiece. Uh, Indy fights them all off. Uh, the bar goes on fire. So Marion has nothing else to do other than to become Indy's partner and help him find the ark, ark the ark of the covenant. You know. Not only for and because obviously he's offered her money, but uh, over the film it com- it becomes more than just for money, you know. Uh, the pair travel to Cairo and they meet up with Salah, played by John Rhys Davis. Uh, and we get some we get a couple of little, nice little scenes. You know they're hanging out with Salah's family and his nine kids. I, he has I think it's nine kids. Yeah, it said somewhere he has a lot of kids. Basically, I can't fully remember the number, but yeah. Anyway, uh, and uh, Marion's uh, hanging out with a monkey. That monkey turns out to be a treacherous, limey, turncoat, little bastard monkey. 
But, uh, yeah. And uh, Salah is talking about, oh, we'll go see a shaman. Uh, he, he'll tell us what the headpiece means. And he also informs Indy the Nazis are in the area. They've been digging outside of Cairo, where they think Tannis is. Uh, that Belloc is uh, the, heading, heading the whole thing up, which makes Indy laugh. Uh, very much a oh this motherfucker again kind of uh moment. We get uh, and then we find out that uh. Somehow, the Nazis have a, have basically a copy, an incomplete copy though of the same headpiece that uh, Marion had, and they were able to get out of Nepal successfully. Uh. Although before they can reach the shaman, they are ambushed on the street by uh, Nazis and local local uh, mercenaries. And then we get one of the best action sequences in the movie. And that's saying something because there's a lot of action sequences in this movie that you could say is the best one. But uh, the whole chase through Cairo is uh, wonderful old school fun. You know, we get... Uh, we get one of the funniest mo- moments in the entire trilogy, if not the funniest, when uh, Indy is uh, stopped by the guy with the sword and the guy with the sword is just doing all the cool flippy moves. You can't see right now, but I'm doing far less cool hand motions to sort of demonstrate what it looks like. Uh, but yeah, so but he does this full, you know, Mortal Kombat uh, start page, uh, sword flip tricks, and then Indy just takes out his gun and shoots him dead which is hilarious and uh, a great moment uh although that was not in the original script indy was meant to like have a fight with the guy but um they just did it they were doing a take and uh ford was exhausted after the day that had been in it you know everyone was tired with the heat and stuff so uh he was he just thought fuck it why don't i try this and he just pulls out the gun and shoots him and uh, they love the scene and uh, that's what made it into the movie even though it wasn't in the script so yeah uh ford ad-lifted and thank god that he did because it's it's great uh we get uh you know marion's uh trying to hide from the nazis she her and indy uh lose each other uh she hides in a barrel she hides in a big basket and we get a fun little sequence where indy's chasing guys who are carrying her off and she's yelling you know indy here i'm here i'm here and uh he ends up in a big crowd of people also holding big baskets and he has to knock them down and uh yeah it, uh, just that entire sequence is a lot of fun you know very old school you know action serials which is what they were going for but uh yeah and unfortunately indy fi- thinks that Marion Marion is killed when uh, the truck that she ends up in uh, uh, rolls over and the TNT in the truck with her explodes but it turns out that uh, she she just she didn't die but we do, but um Indy is unaware of that so uh heartbroken and dejected and inconsolable Indy goes to meet with Belloc in a Restra- a local restaurant surround which is full of uh, Nazi soldiers where Belloc tries to get across this the idea that him and Indy are not so different you know they're both archaeologists they're both 
they both love uh looking for treasure and stuff it's just how they how they act towards it you know it's their behavior in getting it uh but yeah belloc is trying to have this deep dmc with indy about you know you and me aren't so different you know all it takes is one very much along the lines of what joker was trying to say in the killing joke it just takes one bad day but um indy isn't hearing it and he kind of to an extent has a death wish of sorts in this scene because he's he is straight up willing and ready to uh pick a fight with uh belloc despite having him having full nazi backup and indy having literally nothing to defend himself almost but he's saved by Salah's many children who come in and uh, stop him from starting a fight and just take him out, take him out of the restaurant. And yeah, good on, good on Salah's many, many children. Uh, Indy and Salah go to meet the shaman who tells them the version of the headpiece that... um. The copy of the headpiece that uh, the Nazis have is not complete. You know, it's missing stuff. It's missing the stuff on the back of the headpiece, so the 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 Nazis are looking in the wrong place, pretty much. So, uh, which gives a uh, Indian Tala a lot of confidence. Uh, but again, the shaman also, like Marcus Brody, had also said, uh, the headpiece does read "Do not disturb the." Ark of the Covenant, you know, don't don't mess with God's shit, you know. But uh, Indy and Salah then go to the Nazi dig site to find where the staff headpiece do it. The real headpiece indicates um where it is. Uh, we also find that Marion is alive and being held captive by Belloc, you know, having to deal with Belloc's weird advances upon her, which is slightly creepy in a way. And we also find that uh, how the Nazis have any copy of the headpiece, it's because during the fight in Nepal, uh, Toa tried to uh, grab the headpiece from a fire, but the heat burned one side of the headpiece into his hand and just de deformed it. So they're just taking the directions off of his, this guy's deformed hand, which is a cool shot. And honestly does make uh, Toad out to be even creepier than he was, somehow, because he has a weird, deformed hand, creepy-looking shit. A little bit vaginal-looking, but, uh, yeah. Uh, and they find they find the map room where uh, we get one, again, like I said, another iconic scene. Indy finds a, a stick large enough and... Uh, finds uses the staff head with the sun going up in the right direction which they totally fucking nicked from Newgrange there I said it um <laughs> anyway so yeah they use the staff head to find where the well of souls is the well of souls is the chamber where the ark of the covenant is being kept uh and yeah because there's a tiny um tiny scale model of uh, the city of Tanis and yeah I just thought that's re really cool sequence yeah but um uh oh, where is it I'm looking at my notes uh Indy and Marion are then reunited but uh Indy realizes shit I can't um 
I can't set her free because if they if she finds that if she gets set free, they'll they'll know that um I'm there and it'll blow our cover. Uh, so P has to just tell her, look, I can't I can't save you right now. You need to stay here while I go and dig for the well of the souls. Uh, Indian Salas sneak a dig team onto the site during the afternoon and they begin to dig into the night, eventually finding the chamber. The, the entrance to the chamber of the Will of Souls. Uh, Indy goes down and, despite being creeped out by snakes, manages to find the chest in which the Ark of the Covenant is being kept. Uh, him and Sala then manage to uh, hoist it out out into the, up to the surface, but um, that's when Belloc and the Nazis realise that uh, they're on the site and that they've actually found it. Uh, so Belloc and Co just nick it, you know, very much like at the start of the film. There was nothing that you can find that I cannot, uh, that nothing you can possess that I cannot take away, you know. Great little callback as well, but uh, yeah. So everyone's captured, and Indy and Marion get tossed out back down into the chamber, and they shut the lid. But obviously, in these types of movies, that's not going to be enough to kill our heroes. So they fight through a lot of snakes, and they manage to find their way up to the surface, where the Nazis are trying to airlift the Ark off-site, and presumably back to Berlin. But uh, Indy and Marion manage to uh, blow up the plane that uh, the uh, Ark is about to be put onto, uh, after we get the first of what would become three fights over the course of the trilogy between Indy and an extra played by the late great Pat Roach, uh, who I believe in the who would again play a Nazi in Last Crusade and would play one of the uh, bad guys henchmen in uh, Temple of Doom, uh, and as I said earlier with um. Indy's fear of snakes being an important weak character weakness. Uh, the fights with um, Pat Roach's extras characters uh, always symbolise why Indy was a great hero because during those fights, Indy is always getting his ass kicked. And throughout this whole movie, whenever Indiana, Indiana Jones is in a fight, you know, there's always a point where we think, oh no, this is it, he's going to die. He's getting his ass handed to him, but he finds a way to win. In modern day action films, there's never a point where you think the hero's actually in danger. You know, like maybe maybe in the first couple of John Wick movies. But I feel like even at that point, that franchise has started to kind of go away from that to an extent. You know, he is a bit unkillable at this point. Which, which is infinitely less enjoyable than a hero who we think can be killed. Who who is vulnerable and in, in these uh fight sequences, Indy is very vulnerable. You know he's get like I said he's getting his ass handed to him, before um he wins because uh, the German soldier is too busy fighting Indy to notice that the plane propeller is uh coming around and he meets a very very violent end, but uh. Yeah, I just think that's why this movie holds up so well, and Indy Indiana Jones holds up so well as a character. You know, he's he is a human being. You know, he can get his ass handed to him. He he is in danger, which means, which only increases the sense of danger 
about what is happening on screen if we think the hero is actually in danger. You know, that's what the original trilogy did really well. Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, Indy was just um was just invincible, would always win every fight, never felt in danger, which is partly why uh Crystal Skull which is one of the issues with Crystal Skull. And there are a good few issues with Crystal Skull, I will have you know. Oh, and I said I didn't want to mention that. Oh well. Anyway, let's keep going. Basically, uh, the soldiers, the, the Nazis then uh, realize, okay, fuck, the, uh, the, the airplane option is out. Put the, put the Ark on a truck and we will uh, we'll transport it to Cairo via truck instead. But Indy pursues this truck convoy carrying the Ark via, he starts off uh, chasing it on horseback, but uh, as as things go, he hops onto one truck, uh, knocks out everyone on the truck, and then just goes from truck to truck, taking out Nazis one by one. In a, like I said, this whole action set piece um, took in and around five, six weeks to do for just a few minutes of screen time. Great, very much a reminder that um, movie making is hard, especially on really difficult action sequences like this. Like this is. This is one of the greatest action sequences ever made. The truck chase in Raiders, uh, especially because like as the because of the stunt which I had mentioned a few times, previously in this review, where Indy goes underneath one of the trucks and is dragged along. Uh, just and he's just dragged along by the truck while he's holding on. India Harrison Ford did that um scene. That scene is legitimately dangerous. Like if that had gone wrong, he could have been killed. You know, like that is a legitimately dangerous stunt. That that is some that is some shit that Tom Cruise would do in a Mission Impossible movie. You know. This was that was this was the OG Tom Cruise Mission Impossible stunt, uh, and it looks amazing. It still holds up so well, you know, because it's good, clean action filmmaking. You can see what is happening. There's not a million cuts. You know, this isn't Liam Neeson jumping a fence and taking three, taking the piss. But anyway, you know, you can see what's going on. You know, they keep the camera on the action as long as it needs to be. You know, you can hear the punches. You get a lovely Wilhelm scream at some point during it. Uh, you know, Indy feels in danger. You know, he's get he gets he he takes a he takes an ass kicking as much as he uh, dishes out an ass kicking to multiple Germans, and he eventually does uh take control of the truck carrying the ark. He runs Belloc and Dietrich off off uh, off road in their car to delay their pursuit of them and then uh then later on that evening they say goodbye to Salah in Cairo and Indy and Marion board a boat out of uh Egypt carrying the which is carrying the ark with them uh but it's captured where we get a where we get some nice scenes between Indy and Marion that kind of just build upon their romantic connection with one another you know, we got the great line uh, by Indy, you know, it's not about the year, it's not about the years, it's the mileage. Uh, great line, you know, I feel like that's, that is a line that will definitely pop up in this 
up in upcoming fifth film at some point because yeah it's very it's very much not about the years anymore it is about the mileage and house and fort has a lot of years and a lot of mileage on him god bless him but anyway uh we get a nice little bit of physical comedy you know india india gets it in the face with a mirror uh but obviously there's not enough there isn't that much time for um uh romance you know to, to quote short round in temple of doom no time for love, Dr. Jones. Uh, I'm not sure why my short round voice was Jamaican. I do apologise. But I would also have apologised for doing short round's voice at all. But um, anyway, anyway, getting that's getting off subject. But uh, yeah, they're captured by a German submarine. And while the ship's captain does uh, try and uh, persuade the Nazis to have to let Marion stay on the boat... For the crew's own amusement, uh, well, although that that isn't uh, that 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 does imply that they do they do some nasty stuff to Marion. It's very much you know it's a case of they just want to protect Marion. That's how it came across to me anyway. But um, yeah, Marion. Uh, but they take Marion, and Indy is presumed dead on the boat after an encounter with a German officer. But uh. Turns out Indy's alive and he makes it on board the submarine before it uh, goes under and sort of hides on the submarine until they land uh say they they make land at a Mediterranean island. Uh I can't remember the name of it, but it's somewhere in the Mediterranean. But uh and we get a scene where Belloc explains to Dietrich why they're stopped. It's like Do you want to uh do you want to go all the way to Berlin and show uh, show your Führer you found the Ark of the Covenant only to find out that there's nothing inside it or it isn't the actual Ark, you know, that it doesn't have the power, you know? They want to give it a test run. And it does very much come across like Belloc at some point is planning to screw out, screw the Nazis out of it and take the Ark for himself. Which, I w- honestly, I would have loved to have seen that, but it, that does not happen because um, we all know what happens. Uh, yeah, Indy tries to call their bluff by, uh, threatening to shoot the destroy the Ark with a rocket launcher, but he can't do it because, again, he's an archaeologist and, you know, he, he understands, he knows, you know, what, what could be if he captures the Ark for, like, the museum or something. But, uh, yeah, so he can't do it and he's captured and him and Marion get tied up while the Nazis, uh, prepare film cameras to film opening the arc so that they can get the power of God on camera. They can get a video evidence that uh, the, the arc works. Uh, but turns out the Nazis are really stupid for doing that because they open it up and at first they just think it's sand. So there's that brief moment of uh, disappointment where they're just like, I hear you fucking kidding me. And then we get... Honestly, CGI this for 1981 still holds up decent, fairly okay. Like, there's CGI from later on in the 80s that holds up worse than this CGI here with the ghosts coming out of uh, the Ark, which which does have a very haunting presence to it. You know, there's a, sen- there's, a, there's a sense of haunting to the ghosts. They do come across as a little bit creepy and upset, unsettling, which is what you want from... Uh, the power of God, you know, uh, 
And then and then the next the sequence is just fucking awesome. Uh you know, there's sparks of light uh shoot out from the arc and uh destroy the cameras and uh they just shoot through like all of the Nazis uh that are watching and then you know Belloc, Tote and Dietrich's faces all melt, you know uh one two of them melt and then Belloc's head just explodes. Uh and like I said, this movie pushed the boundaries of what was considered PG PG. This definitely pushed it, you know. This is again one of the most iconic things in the movie. Uh and yeah, how many times have we all heard someone joke about the fa- face melting from uh Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know? I mean, it pops up in community, for God's sakes. But, uh, yeah, and, uh, it, but Indian and Marion are okay because, uh, they're smart enough to close their eyes. You know, Indy just repeatedly just yells to Marion, don't open your eyes, don't look, because if you look at it, you know, you're gonna die. And, uh, yeah, that's pretty much what saves them. And I know, I know that there's the the whole theory of like, well, you know, if 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 Indy had had if Indy hadn't gotten involved at all, this still would have happened to the Nazis, you know that. Uh, but you know, if you if that's your thinking, then you know, like, boo, like, who who cares, you know, you know, it's a movie for God's sakes. Let let it just be a movie. But uh, yeah. Besides that, anyway, so they survive, uh, the Nazis are all dead, the, you know, the good guys win, hooray, but, uh, when they get back to the States, uh, Indy is very annoyed that the government has taken control of the Ark, and, uh, they won't let Indy or anyone from the museum do research on it, they just say, oh, we have top people working on it, uh, and we just see at the very end, uh, and obviously Indy knows this is bullshit, you know, they don't know what they're dealing with. Uh, but Marion is there to comfort him and, you know, they go for a drink and, uh, you know, and then we don't see Marion again until that film that we, again, shall not be mentioned, apart from the times already where I've mentioned it. But, uh, yeah, and then the closing shot of the film is, uh, the US government putting the Ark of the Covenant away in this big, huge warehouse, which, uh, a lot of people think is the opening is the warehouse from the opening of uh Crystal Skull which is which would which which would have been neat you know I'd love to see more of that uh, warehouse in this fifth film but uh yeah and that's pretty and then that's where the film ends uh we get the iconic John Williams score to close us out you know again one of the all-time great movie scores although that top 5 list of all time would just be a list full of John Williams top 10 even you know, it, it, it's, it's amazing, as is so much of John Williams' scores. Uh, there's not much else that can really be said. Uh, let's get into some post-production. The, it was released in the US on the 12th of June, 1981. 12th of June just happened a couple of days ago, so this is now a 40-year-old movie. Uh, it w- was released in the UK on the 30th of July, 1981. And it was released in Ireland on the 7th of August, 1981. Because back then, release dates were not day and date across the world. And were, from all accounts, a pa- would have been a pain in the ass for me if I had been around in 1981. 
Uh, it had a budget of 18 million, which doesn't seem like a lot considering how much money the movie made and how, how good it looks for 18 million. But Spielberg was worried about it going over budget or going over schedule. Thankfully, it was done within the schedule and it stayed within the budget, although the budget did increase from what it was originally being thought up of. It went from kind of like a campy B-movie to having a, 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 a fairly blockbuster-style budget for the time, that for, 19, for 1981 standards. Uh, in its opening weekend in the US, it made $8.3 million. Its opening weekend in the UK, it made £119,000. Which doesn't sound like much in terms of nowadays, but, you know, back then, you know, that was a lot for the UK box office. And even nowadays, the UK box office does not account for as much as the impressive numbers as, like, the US would do, you know? Like, like that. that's just how it is. You know, that doesn't, make, that doesn't mean, no, in the UK, it's all, it just means the UK's box office numbers are usually much smaller than the US even when the movie isn't rip roaring success in the UK. That that that's probably just how money works, I think. I don't know. In terms of its domestic gross overall in the US, it made two hundred and forty eight point one million, which is gangbusters in nineteen eighty one. Uh its total international gross was a hundred and forty one point seven million. Uh, put that two, put those numbers together, and you get a total worldwide gross of three hundred eighty nine point nine million dollars, which is an insane amount of money in nineteen eighties, early nineteen eighties standards. You know, like that's almost like that's Avengers movie level money in nineteen eighties, early nineteen eighties. Uh, box office wise, it was the highest grossing film of nineteen eighty one by some considerably big margins in terms of worldwide releases uh the 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 second highest grossing film that year was for your eyes only which came in 172 million dollars behind Raiders of the Lost Ark uh and it's in terms of the US domestic box office the number 2 movie that year was uh, on golden pond which came in almost a full 100 million behind Raiders of Lost Ark's U.S. gross, so like, yeah, so like that is massive, you know, like, like there's a huge, like there's mass, like there's blockbuster level, uh, gr- worldwide grosses that separate uh, Raiders from everything else that year, box office wise, and this has, and this is probably the most in terms of the movies we've covered so far. This has the most interesting box office run that I think I've ever covered. It's opening weekend, it debuted at number one before it lost the number one spot the following week to Spider, to uh, Superman, Superman 2. Uh, Superman 2 was then number one at the box office for a full month. Uh, on the week of, uh, on the week July 19th, 1981, uh, I always knew there was something important about July the 19th, to be honest. Cheeky little Father Ted reference there for anyone who doesn't get it. Uh, July 19th, 1981, it reclaimed the top spot for a week before being knocked off for the next two weeks. First by Tarzan and the Ape Man, and then the following week by uh, an, a re-release of The Empire Strikes Back. But, it was number, but then it retook number one again for a full month between early August and mid-September. 
So we did four weeks uh, at number one in the US box office uh, at that tail end of the summer. Despite having been open for being in cinema for well over a month. Close to two months at that point uh, before it did its month at the number one spot. It then fell out of the number one spot in mid-September uh, to films like Arthur uh, with Dudley Moore. But it reclaimed its number one spot on the 6th of December 1981 in its 26th release week of release. So it had been in cinemas non-stop for 26 weeks at that point and, had, and was number one again for, at that point, yeah, like the seventh time. Uh, and insanely enough, it didn't fall out of the top 10 in the US box office until March of 1982. So that is that is a full nine months, you know, like you could have you could have made a baby the week that movie came out and that baby could have been born by the time it was out of the top 10. That's how long this movie stuck around for. That is the definition of fucking box office legs. Uh, and it did. so, And uh, yeah, so uh, like I said, box office is. But again, box office isn't everything about a movie, but. Sometimes, you know, box office is just a really interesting indication of, like, where a movie going was at, is at at the time. And this is very interesting, you know, because this is a, this was a powerhouse box office-wise. Uh, and it did so well upon its home release, vi- home video release in the US, which, again, at that time, would, would have, that would have been the equivalent of DVDs back then for anyone who's kind of too young to know what the term home video would mean it would have been dvds or videotapes at that point so yeah it would have been cassette tapes and videotapes and whatnot but yeah it did so well in the u.s in terms of home video on its debut that the that the home video release worldwide was delayed so that the studio could do a re-release in of Raiders of the Lost Ark in theaters in 1982 you know uh, because again, at that this was the point where re re releases were very common. Like I said, Empire Strikes Back was re released in the summer of nineteen eighty one, despite coming out in the summer of nineteen eighty. So even a year later, they would still do re releases if a movie was big enough or made that much of a impact at the box office. You know, which is unheard of nowadays. You know, that would be like if Endgame just randomly came back to theaters uh, now. Although I feel like that could potentially do theaters a lot of good, but uh, yeah, uh, it was added to the uh national regist- to the national film registry by the U.S. Library of Congress in nineteen ninety nine. The only film in the Indiana Jones series to have been put in the national film registry, uh, which is a big honor. Uh, it was nominated for nine Oscars, including. Best Picture, Best Director, Best Cinematography, Best Sound, Best Film Editing, Best Original Score, Best Art Design, and Best Visual Effects. It won four of those Oscars. It won for Best Sound, Best Editing, Best Art Direction, and Best Visual Effects. And it was awarded a Special Achievement Award for Sound Effects Editing, which was given to Ben Burt, who is the... Who at who is the king of sound design? Pretty much, he done the sound design for um, Star Wars. He done the sound design for um, 
Indiana Jones. He, he He's an absolute legend in that field. And it was a well-deserved uh, award for this because the sound effects are phenomenal. Like, that, the, the sound of Indiana Jones' whip is fucking iconic. And you cannot argue otherwise. Uh, there was a black and white version released in 2014 with no original sound and an electronic uh, score. It was done by Steven Soderbergh. A very weird sounds very weird. I've never seen it. I didn't even I didn't even know it existed until I was doing the research for this. But it was designed to sort of showcase the uh, scale and but basically it was to sort of highlight the staging of uh, that uh, Spielberg did in the movie and just kind of like the the more um technical stuff it was meant to showcase the more technical aspects of uh, the film that uh, Spielberg did. I think it had Spielberg's blessing, I, I don't know. But it, I just felt it, found, it seemed very interesting. As I said, this movie really did test what the censors at the time deemed PG. Like, there was a lot of people angry about how... Th- this movie, this feels like a movie that should have been PG-13 at least. You know, with the, like I said, with the stuff in the ancient ruins at the start with her bodies and skeletons hanging from booby traps and gruesome murders and deaths and the face melting you know it was really starting to push what was considered pg at the time and then obviously temple of doom came out in 1984 and completely broke the rating system and is where we ended up with pg 13 rated r movies you know this movie was where the boulder started to fall down the hill, but um, Temple of Doom was just what flattened the system at the time and led to a new system having to be thought up in terms of uh, film ratings. It's oft regarded as uh, one of the best films ever made. It's always, it always pops up whenever any big film magazines do, like the top 50 movies of all time, top whatever... You know, atop so many lists, it's critically adored even all these years later. You know, it's it's by far the best in the franchise. Even I will say that as someone who has a... It was a soft spot for a Temple of Doom, uh, for all that movie's flaws. We'll do that. We'll do that in another episode, I swear. Uh, it spawned three sequels, soon to be four. Although a lot of people wished that... For, that um fourth one never happened including me uh it includes one of the best trilogies of all time uh raiders of lost ark temple of doom and last crusade you know three great movies enjoyable movies fun movies the epitome for me of like what an action adventure old school action adventure should be look at indiana jones that is the gold standard as far as i'm concerned crystal of skull there uh, it also inspired video games, comics, a prequel TV show, uh, The Adventures of Young Indiana Jones, which uh, included an episode where Indiana Jones fights with uh, fights with the Ra and is uh, in Dublin on the day of the nineteen sixteen Easter Rising, which is really really bizarre, and makes me laugh just thinking about it to be honest because that's ridiculous. But uh, yeah, uh, 
and it's been paid tribute to, it's paid, been paid homage to, and it's been straight up ripped off for a decade. Like, I know every everyone has a soft spot for 1999's The Mummy, but if you look at The Mummy with Brendan Fraser, it is so ripping off uh, Indiana Jones. Like, that was, that was, that was the 90s Indiana Jones. Uh, and it, it was trying to be, and while it's nowhere near as good as this, it still succeeded, you know, and Brendan Fraser is always a win, from, for me at least. But, uh, yeah, that just shows how much, um, this movie influenced, because so many directors have been influenced by this. As I said, the Mummy series was just ripping Indiana Jones off so hard. This, uh, it is one of the most iconic movies ever made. And uh, like I said, take a drink whenever I say the word iconic. But that's just what this movie is. It is it is a seminal landmark. It is one of those game changers in terms of the action genre. You know, I would say, well, like, the, like if you were to say, like, what were the most important action movies of all time? Or the ones where, like, if you couldn't watch any other action movies but a select few, what are the select few that would be game changing? I would say Raiders, Die Hard, Terminator 2, The Matrix, and maybe John Wick in terms of modern, like, this last, this current generation of action movies. But yeah, like, if that that's probably, I'd say, the top five most influential action movies of all time. And this was the first. This was the one that really changed the game, like... We don't get, we don't get from like the old school westerns style of uh, action to what we would get in the eighties with Arnold and shit. If we if you we if we didn't have movies like Raiders of the Lost Ark that kind of bridge that gap, that show oh you can do old school action but you can do it with modern effects, big explosions and stuff like that. You know this movie was instrumental in bridging that gap between those t- different eras of action and yeah the the action genre would not be what it is today without movies like Rage of the Lost Ark and finally before I go I can't not mention this because it was what led to one of my all-time favorite documentaries entitled Raiders the story of the greatest fan film ever made this movie came out in 1981 Three kids somewhere in America saw this movie and decided, you know what? We are going to remake this movie shot for shot over whatever, how many summers or whatever. And they did. There was a shot for shot remake of Raiders of the Lost Ark out there that was made by some teenagers in their, over their summer holidays over a course of six years. And it is so freaking cool you know like they do like they obviously they don't have the budget they don't have anything near the budget that Spielberg and Lucas had but they but you watch it and uh you just see the amount of heart and dedication that went into it because they they recreated every scene like they recreated the face melting scene you know one of the kids ends up in hospital because he almost suffocated to death doing the face melting scene but uh he was okay thank god uh, you know, they recreated the boulder scene. They recreated all of the action stuff. But, um... And character-wise, and yeah, the acting's ropey. But, you know, 
there's just such there's such a heart to it and i recommend if you love Raiders of the Lost Ark but you haven't seen the shot for shot remake do do watch it because it is just the most wonderful thing you will see and uh yeah and watch the documentary as well because there was one scene that they just could not do uh when they were making it as kids and that was the scene with the plane and the expl explo plane explosion because obviously where the fuck are you going to find a plane in small town America but uh yeah, but the documentary is them being able to finish it and do the actual shot with the plane and recreate that scene and sort of them coming back together because they hadn't talked in many, many years. They had a falling out, I think. But yeah, go watch Raiders, the story of the greatest plan film ever made. It's wonderful. Go watch the Shot for Shot remake because it's hilarious and really endearing and it's great. And it just shows like what 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 you can achieve if you just love movies enough and you love movie making enough uh so yeah that's my that's my review for that's this, this that's the episode done now with uh Wizards of Lost Ark I, again I don't know what next week's will be you know if there's another movie that's turning 40 or 30 or 20 or 10 years old maybe we'll do that uh but yeah thank you for listening I hope you enjoyed it uh, like I said, I'm not fully there in terms of where I think I can get with, like, doing the show by myself. I still think I'm a work in progress without guests. But, you know, I need to work on it and hopefully I will get better. But I, I feel like this episode's gone okay. Anyway, thank you for all, thank you all for listening. Uh, I will be back next week with a, with a yet-to-be-determined, uh, film that we are doing. Maybe I'll have a guest, maybe I won't. Who knows? I don't know. I don't know yet. Anyway, uh, until next time, thank you and uh, goodbye. <laughs>